Merry Christmas, although that does come in, but I've, I've realized there's a new uh, universal greeting wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whenever you see somebody you know, uh, the same words always spring from our lips. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you set? Are you prepared? And whenever anyone says that to me, uh, a level of anxiety uh, rises within. Am I ready? I don't know. Can't always keep track of what I need to do. Uh, Fortunately, the internet has the answer. Or to be uh, more precise, Mumsnet has the answer. A million mums can't be wrong. And Mumsnet tells us exactly what we need to do to be prepared for Christmas and exactly how long it takes. Writing and delivering Christmas cards, two hours, 51 minutes. Decorating the tree, one hour, 38 minutes. Decorating the house, two hours, 43 minutes. Cleaning the house, I presume you clean the house before you decorate, but maybe you do it after. Cleaning the house before guests arrive, four hours, 28 minutes. Or in our house, 15 minutes. (laughs) Present wrapping, three hours, 35 minutes. Researching recipes, One hour, seven minutes. Laying the table, 49 minutes. Goes on and goes on. My favourite two. Serving drinks, one hour, two minutes. That's a lot of drinks. And uh, best one of all, making nativity costumes, two hours, 57 minutes. If you add it all up to prepare for Christmas, it takes you 50 hours, 49 minutes. Basically, a week's work plus overtime. Now you feel anxious, don't you? Are you ready? Are you prepared? Our gospel reading this morning features John the Baptist. And he's noted in each of the four gospels as the one who asked the people of Jesus' day, Are you ready? Ready not for Christmas, but ready to meet the Christ. Ready to meet the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Son of God. For centuries, the Jewish people have been waiting for the Messiah. Waiting for God to come to their rescue. They'd once been a proud nation. A nation with their own king seated in Jerusalem. A nation with a great temple and a vibrant faith in God. And then they knew defeat and destruction. First at the hands of the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. The kings were killed. The temple destroyed. Jerusalem flattened. And the people carried off into exile. And God... Well, it seemed that God had abandoned them. It seemed like that, but they didn't quite believe it. And there was one thing that kept them from believing that, kept them from believing the evidence of their eyes. One thing that kept them trusting in God against all the odds. And that thing was their history and the prophets. Recording in what we now think of as the Old Testament, these men of God spoke words of hope and words of promise. Just heard an example read this morning. 
The Lord has taken away your punishment. The Lord has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Do not fear. Do not be anxious. Do not let your hands go limp. The Lord, your God, is with you. The mighty warrior who saves, he will take great delight in you. In his love, he will rejoice over you with singing. For 600 years, years of exile, these words sustained the people of God. Because of these words, they believed that God had not abandoned them and that God would one day deliver them. And then John the Baptist declares that deliverance is at hand, that a mighty warrior is in their midst, that the Lord is with them in person. But they don't recognize him. They don't see him. They don't know where he is. Hundreds flock to John's preaching. Hundreds are baptized. And in John's day, baptism was a sign of repentance, a sign of making a fresh start. Repentance was about turning from one way of life and turning to a new way of life. Baptism was about starting again, washing away your old identity, taking on a new identity. Baptism was a sign that I'm getting prepared, I'm getting ready. I'm preparing for the Lord, and I'm preparing for his message. And then we get a moment of revelation. John is on the banks of the River Jordan, and he sees Jesus walking towards him. And he sees the Spirit of God upon him. And the voice of God whispers to him, This is the one. This is the one. John says, In myself I did not know him. I came baptizing that he might be revealed. And the message of John is that God is in their midst, and he's in their midst in the person of Jesus. He's the one he's been preparing for. He's the one he's been pointing to. And this is the message of Christmas, that God is in our midst in Jesus, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's born into the line of the great king, King David, greatest of Israel's king. His birth has been announced by angels. Wise men have brought gifts in tribute. But he has no throne and no palace, just a manger in a stable. He's found by poor shepherds, shepherds looking for the Messiah. The reminders that if we seek him, we can find him. And we can find him today if only we know where to look. 1961, Russia won the space race. They were the first nation to put a man into space, Yuri Gagarin. 
few days later, Nikita Khrushchev, the Russian premier, was giving a speech. A speech in which he was boasting of the triumphs of this atheist nation. He cheekily put words into the mouth of Gagarin. He said this, We looked and looked, but we did not see God. What actually said was that Gagarin had said, I looked and I looked and I did not see God. Uh, Gagarin, a Russian Orthodox believer, uh, disputed those words. You get the point, though. We've been above the clouds. We've looked and we looked, but we did not see God. C.S. Lewis was a professor in Oxford at the time, and he wrote an essay in response to those words. And the essay, essay, the basic theme of it, uh, goes like this. Looking for God in the clouds is akin to Hamlet looking in the rafters of the theatre for William Shakespeare. Hamlet, in a play, can only have any knowledge of Shakespeare to the extent that Shakespeare writes himself into that play. If Hamlet goes looking for him in the scenery, he will never find him. John and the Gospels testify that God has done something even greater than simply write about himself in the play. He's entered into it and lives within it. Dorothy L. Sayers was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. As I'm sure you know, she was a writer of mystery novels, uh, one of the greatest our country has ever produced. And her most famous creation was a certain Lord Whimsy, a gentleman adventurer, an aristocrat. Never said that word. Posh person. Man who solves mysteries. And uh, through a series of novels, she tells the story of Lord Whimsy and his life and his adventures and uh, the mysteries that he solves. Through the course of those novels, uh, Lord Whimsy uh, would go from being a single man to becoming a married man. He would settle down. He'd live happily ever after. Uh, The lady he married is introduced in one of the novels early on, and in each subsequent novel he uh, meets her at a different point in the story, and their relationship grows. Uh, The lady is called Harriet Vane. Uh, We read in the novels that she's not particularly good-looking. We know just a few facts about her. Uh, Harriet is one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. She's a writer of detective fiction. When she and Peter meet, they fall in love, they solve mysteries, they get married, and they live happily ever after. Dorothy L. Sayers created Peter Whimsey. She loved him. She fell in love with him. She loved him so much she wrote herself into the story so that she could marry him and be with him forever. John testifies that this is precisely what God has done in Jesus. The one who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. God the deliverer, God the mighty warrior has entered into the story. He's come to his people. The king is here. 
the Lord is in our midst. He's gathering his people together and he's bringing salvation to all who would trust in him. He's rescuing them, not from their external enemies, but from their internal ones, from evil and from death. He's rescuing them so that they can be with him forever, live happily ever after in his presence. The good news of John is that the one they have been preparing for has arrived. He's with them and he's for them. He's written himself into the story. Joseph called the Son of God, Jesus, meaning the one who saved. John pointed to that same Jesus and said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What can we do to prepare ourselves to meet this King? to meet this Lord, to meet this one who has done such a great thing. We can only do what the people of Jesus' time did. We can prepare ourselves. We can repent. We can turn around. We can turn from a life lived without him to a life lived with him and for him. We can kneel before him as the wise men did. We can seek him as the shepherds did. We can worship him as the angels did. And we can testify about him as John did. And we can do this in the knowledge that he is for us and that he is with us and his presence changes everything. In the name of Christ. Amen.